From Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, this is Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is away this week, and our student pastor, Ivy Rhodes, is in with today's message. Ivy's going to be telling us about the new ministry opportunity he and his family will begin this coming September. We're glad you've joined us. Now here's Pastor Ivy. Uh, This past week, I sent out an email to the church and explained the next step in the journey that God has my family and myself on. And in that journey, it included me leaving cross-culture in September. I came here back in March of 2013, March 1st, almost exactly three years ago. And uh, God was at work in that whole situation and how we got the job. We thought we were going to be jobless when we moved here, but God provided cross-culture, and it has been a wonderful experience. And in terms of us leaving in the next six months, it has nothing to do with not liking the church because we love this church and we love this people of God. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and we have loved our students. We love working with our students. And I've, I've been amazed to see the growth in some of their lives and how God can use even me to do something like that. And, and you know, I really came to this conclusion. I was sitting down there worshiping today and watching Allie play the violin. And the real person you're going to miss is Allie uh, here at the church because... Um, I mean, who's going who's gonna to clean the bathrooms? That's an, that's an important thing. I'm not kidding about that. Not being sarcastic. And uh, so we're going to find somebody else to do that and do the nursery and keep all the kids and play the violin. And, and uh, for me, you're just going to have to find some guy to play the electric guitar really bad on Sunday morning. So <laughs> that was good. <laughs> nice laugh down there. Yeah. So because you know it's true. That's the problem. All right. Back on topic. So we're leaving in September, and the reason we're leaving is because God has called us to start a church. And we went through a whole journey of where and how to start this thing. And when we came here knowing we wanted to start a church one day, it was a discussion that Allie and I had been having for years. We didn't know where, when, or how it was going to happen. And then about a year ago, I took a trip to Boston, Massachusetts. I know, and you're saying, why Boston? Um, I don't know. Uh, as I heard one time before, a servant does not pick the field in which he serves. Uh, and so I went there and I started praying through the streets. I walked like way too much and my feet hurt way too much as I prayed through the streets of Boston, just asking God to tell us where to go. And I came away and came home and looked at my wife and said, and I said, Allie, I think this is it. I think this is it. And we went through a whole process of praying through it and struggled because we love this church so much of what to do. And then a couple months back, I talked to Pastor Clay, and I sent him an email. He knew. This wasn't behind his back or anything. He knew everything that was going on all the way through it. And I just sent him an email and said, I really believe that God's calling us to do this work now. And so now we find ourselves in the situation where we're having to transition out of here and go to Boston, which is not the easy thing. It's definitely the hard thing. And I don't mean easy in the sense that ministry here is just easy. There's been struggles and all that stuff, but it's just... It feels good. You know that feeling you're somewhere, it just feels good. And I just must be a glutton for punishment because I'm trying to go to a place that doesn't feel good. As, as one of the pastors in Boston described it to me, coming to Boston is like going out to a field and realizing that it's a concrete, that it's made out of concrete and you have to till it up. And so that's where we're heading. But I believe that the gospel can have great impact in the city of Boston. So quickly, I want to run you through some things about the city of Boston. Maybe you're, uh, you did or didn't know this, but this is, uh, go back one slide. I know I really tricked you, Tyler. Uh, this is a church we're thinking 
of naming. Everything is still up for grabs, but this is where we are right now. Collective church. And because we believe that God is bringing, has been bringing together a people to worship Him. And in one expression of that will be a church in Boston. And you see the J, it's hard to kind of read there, but uh, in Boston there's a place called Jamaica Plain, which we're going to talk about in just a second. That's what that JP stands for right there. But there's some statistics on uh, Boston. Boston has a population of 4.5 million in the uh, metro area. In the statistical area, which is a much larger space that actually goes outside of Massachusetts a little bit, is actually 10 million people. And it's the 10th largest city in the United States. This is a, a big place. I've never lived in a place like this before. And so just the dynamics of that are interesting. And then it's also one of the most influential cities in the world. In fact, a lot of the pastors that I talked to when I was there told me that it's disproportionately influential in the world compared to its size. Because you think of the influence of places like New York City and Los Angeles and Tokyo and all those places. And yes, they have massive influence. But even though Boston is down the list a little bit of the largest cities in the United States, it has some of the uh, greatest schools in the entire world. Schools like Harvard, where students come to Harvard from all over the world, and then they are then sent back out across the United States and across the world to do work all over. And we have MIT, which has its own impact all over the world as we see how technology is moving and medical technology and, and uh, electronics and all the... I was just this week seeing a robot that they made it at MIT that looks creepily human, and uh, it was blowing my mind. But we see the impact of these schools, and there's also 100-plus other colleges and universities adding up to 250,000 students that are not uh, Boston... Uh, residents, but just coming in and out every school year, 250,000 students, and it flips on September 1st. And basically the only time to sign a lease in Boston is on September 1st when that happens. And when you do that, you actually have to rent the U-Haul if you're going to move your stuff by the hour and you have to get it back because so many people move in and out of Boston on September 1st at the beginning of the school year. It is a place filled with students. And we see throughout history where students have been the uh, part of the driving force of great awakenings, especially the second great awakening in America, where there was, uh, it started with the college students and spread out to impact the entire country. And we see how students have been in this, this city is in a lot of ways a college city, where we see students have great impact across this city and, and how we can uh, use, uh, how God can use them through the church to impact a lot of people. Boston is also the ninth most economically powerful city in the world, ranking above cities like Chicago and even Tokyo because of its banking power. But here's the problem. It has all these things, all these great things, and it's beautiful, uh, especially during the spring. Uh, and, uh, you know, skyscrapers and wealth and uh, just all these great things. But Boston is 3% evangelical. 3% evangelical. Now, when I tell you that number, we would believe that most of the other people in Boston would be unbelievers. That the rest of the 97% are people that may have a religion, may, have, may even go to some church, but do not consider themselves true evangelical Christians and followers of Christ as we recognize it. And 
Uh, and then next we have 41% non-religious. This is statistically what they call nuns, and not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. Nuns, which means they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And 41% of Boston is made up of these people. And then the rest are made up of other religions um, and, and Catholicism, which is still uh, culturally huge in Boston, even though they're considered a post-Catholic uh, city. There's a lot of need in Boston. In the South, we have one church, uh, one um, Baptist church per somewhere about 3,500. In Boston, it is one per 55,000 people. There's great need for more churches. And as I went there and I met pastors, I saw that God was doing what they call a silent revival, where it's not big and it's not, everybody's not talking about it. But they've seen slowly but surely as faithful um, men and women have come and they have brought the gospel to Boston. They have seen God work in miraculous ways and churches grow. Where at one point it was considered a church graveyard. That if you wanted to die, that's where you went. Now, Boston's a big place. 23 um, neighborhoods. And they're all different. You can... Go from one street, if you've ever been there, you can go from one street to the next street and go into another neighborhood. And you can tell the difference between what neighborhood you're in just one street over. And there's 23 of them throughout throughout, uh, Boston. And the one that we're honing in on is a place called, um, you can see there, that's Boston there, is a place called Jamaica Plain. And that's where the JP comes from. That's what they call it. They call it JP. Um, And Jamaica Plain is about two, almost three miles from Boston's the center of Boston as you walk kind of southwest. And it's a three, let me see if I got it on there. Go ahead and bring it up for me, Tyler. I want want to get it right. It's a little over three square miles, I believe. Um, And in those three square miles, there's 43,000 people. And there is one Bible-believing church, Christ uh, proclaiming church in that 43,000 people. One. God, and actually that was just, that church is brand new. Um, These kind of numbers don't happen in the South a lot of times. Very few places it's like this. Um, And that was a recent development that even there was a church there. Because when I first started talking about a year ago, there was nothing there that they would consider Bible-believing, Christ, uh, you know, evangelizing and all that stuff. And so God's called us to this place, Jamaica Plain, which is a community of 43,000 people, most of which are in desperate need of Christ. So here we are, wondering and, and uh, thinking through this process of how we're going to get there. And in six months, we see ourselves moving in the beginning of September when all of Boston moves, see us showing up and stepping out in faith. So today, what I want to talk about, I want to talk about what God asks of the great and the small. You would, you can open up to 2 Kings chapter 5. This is a story of stories. It's the kind of thing that if we were going to um, make a movie, this would be the one. This would be the one that you can imagine having a movie. It has characters, as I count, has nine different characters, including God, in the story. And we follow these people through all kinds of plot developments, and we see subplots underneath, and we see all this... uh, We see a climax, and then we see a resolution and a happy ending, and we see this story that would just be perfect for Hollywood. 
And it's why it's one of the most known stories in the book of 2 Kings. If you're going to name a story in 2 Kings, it's probably this one. If you're going to read a children's book on, uh, that has 2 Kings in it, they're probably telling this story. It's the story of our main protagonist, Naaman. And Naaman has it all together. Let's read right here. Now Naaman was captain of the army of the king of Aram. I want you to see, when you see Aram, think today, think Syria. Same place. Was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now I want you to look at that. You say the Lord gave victory to Aram. Aram is not Israel. Israel is God's people. This is a, this is a country outside of Israel. And we see that the Lord has given victory to Aram or Syria. But throughout the book of Kings, we see that uh, that God is the God of all the earth and all the nations. Not just the God of Israel, but the God of everywhere. And that's going to play in a little bit later as we go through this story. You see, Naaman lived in Syria and in Damascus. And Damascus was the city. It was a beautiful city full of all the things you'd want. Not like Samaria, where we'll go in just a minute. Naaman talks about the beautiful rivers that flow through the land of Syria, and they are beautiful. Even to this day, they are beautiful rivers. And Naaman, in the midst of this, is a five-star general. This guy has it together. He's the one with all the money. He's the one with the entourage. And if if you were going to see somebody walking through the streets and having the paparazzi follow these days, if you imagine in our day and time, it would be this guy. He would be the rock star. And they'd be taking the pictures and putting them on the front of the tabloids. Naaman does this, Naaman does that. And then all of a sudden on the tabloid, something comes up. Naaman has leprosy. You see, we see that he had everything he needed. He was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. And no amount of fine clothing and no amount of money and no amount of fame and no amount of fortune and no amount of favor from the king of Syria could give, could take this leprosy away from him. He was a man in need of a miracle. Leprosy is a terrible disease. It's a disease that starts in in your fingertips and your toes and moves up your limbs and starts to take over your body. And we look at our passage and we see that Naaman was in the early stages of this. Because it hasn't taken over. It's, it's on his arm at this time. And Naaman doesn't know what to do. Because he knows that he see, knows the progression. He knows where it's going. And he knows that all this stuff that he has worked so hard for his entire life. Being this great general. Having all these victories. Having all this money being favored to the king. Is going to go away when he dies. And he sees nothing but sorrow and pain in his future. And it's in this moment that hope shows up. In an unexpected place. Let's pray. God, today, we know that you are, as we sang, the God who heals, the Lamb of God who came to take away our sins. Today, as we go through this passage, help me to speak rightly of your word, that we could all understand what you have for us, and that, God, through that, you could change us, change me, that we would all leave here today closer to you than when we came. I just want you to pray something in your heart. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to ask if you did it. Just in your heart today, pray this. God, if you speak to me today, I will obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see Naaman, leprosy, without hope. But hope comes from an unexpected place. Read with me in verse 3. 
Aram, or we'll start in verse 2, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. In this time of Israel and, and Aram, or Syria, they were kind of frenemies. Uh, they weren't full-out enemies, and they didn't really like each other, but sometimes they would help each other. And during this time, Syria would run into Israel, and they would do these raids and sack towns and hit families and homes and take animals and money and people. And we see these thugs that move into Israel and take a girl, a young girl, out and bring her over to Syria. And she's there. She is bought by Naaman, this general. And she lives in his house and serves his wife. And she had every right to be angry. Could you imagine being a, someone who had gone through human trafficking, who was bought and sold and, act, and treated like a piece of property? She had every right to be angry at him and hate him. But she gives him hope. And she says this in verse 3. She said to her mistress, If only my master would go to the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. And Naaman, second to the king, listens to this little servant girl in his house because he is so desperate for healing. And he listens to her and he decides that He's going to do this trip. But to do that, if he's going to get passage to go into Israel, he has to go to the king of Syria. And so he goes up to his king, his king that loves him. And he says, I need to be able to get into Israel because my servant girl told me that there is a prophet there who can heal me. And the king's like, do it. I love you, man. You go out and do it. I'm going to give you all the gold you need. I'm going to give you the finest clothes. I'm going to give you all the silver you need. I'm going to give you donkeys and animals and people to go with you. You go down into Israel and get the healing that you need. And so he does it, and he makes the over 100-mile journey to the city of Syria, the capital city of Israel. And there in the city of, uh, city of uh, Samaria, excuse me, he goes to Samaria. In the city of Samaria, he goes to the king and shows him this letter of passage. And this is what it says. When the letter comes to you, note, I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. And the king of Israel hears this and kind of freaks. Because throughout kings, we see this downward move of Israel where they move away from God. And they're very far from God at this point. And the king goes, who am I? Am I able to give life and take life? I can't heal this guy. Why would he come to me? Thinking that what's going to happen is this five-star general is going to go back to his back to his king in Syria. And he's going to say, I went for healing. I didn't get the healing. Let's go in there and let's take him out. And the king of Israel gets completely overwhelmed, falls to his knees and rips open his shirt, or rips open his cloak. And we think maybe in the Bible they always did this kind of thing, but they didn't always go hulk on their clothes. That was not something that was normally done. Imagine today if the president was to get on uh, the television after a horrible tragedy or something like that, and he was to weep, just completely blubber everywhere. He would look at that and say, something is wrong. <laughs> something is wrong in our country. And so the news gets out, and the prophet, Elisha, hears about what the king did. He's like, hey, bro. That's my translation. Hey, bro, I'm right here. I'm living in your own city. The prophet of God 
Don't you remember that guy that you used to worship, but now you worship other gods? You remember that guy that your ancestors worshipped, the God of David, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob? You remember that guy? That's the God that I serve. And he, the king then sends Naaman to Elisha. This is what Elisha says. I want to read it to you because I think it's, I think it's so great. He says, when he finds out, he says, excuse me, have him come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Know that there is a prophet in Israel. And Naaman comes up to his door and imagine this scene with me. Stretch chariots. An entourage of people. The finest donkeys in the land. Gold and silver and, and, uh, and all the things that come along with who Naaman was as second in command of Syria. Comes up to the door of this lowly prophet and stands there and looks at the door. Expecting for at any moment the door to blow open and the red carpet to roll out. And here he will welcome in second in command of Syria. But the door stays shut, the Bible tells us. And Naaman has to be getting a little confused here. Doesn't he know who I am? And then all of a sudden, the door cracks open and a head pops out. And he looks over at Naaman and he gives him some instructions. He says this, Go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. And we might think that was Elisha the prophet who gave him that, but it wasn't. It was just Elisha's servant. Elisha and Naaman don't meet at this point. And Naaman freaks. I could wipe him out. I could come into his city and destroy it. Doesn't he know that I am a general of Syria and I could just take over everything and I could take everything he had and take his life and he treats me like this. He doesn't even come out and meet me. He sends out his servant and then to top it all off, he tells me to go wash in that dirty, disgusting Jordan River. Doesn't he think I've ever taken a bath before? And if I took a bath, I'd take a bath in the rivers of Damascus, the rivers of pure water. Not that muddy thing. Who does he think he is talking to me like that? And they leave. He was just offered healing. He was just offered to be healed of his skin disease, which he had traveled hundred uh, or so miles to get healed from. And he walks away from it in his pride. You know, a little bit down the road, you can imagine one of his ser- servants just kind of raising his hand. and uh, <clears throat> Maybe he got enough courage because he'd heard about the Servant girl, I don't know. It's a different servant. Uh, sir, um, now here, here's the thing. We went like 100 miles to get here. He gives us this way for you to be healed. I know it wasn't what you wanted. I know you wanted him to come out there and do some kind of magical incantation over top of your wound so that it would heal and you would be all better. And if he would have asked you to do something difficult, maybe if he said, go sack this city and take it over. And if you, if you destroy this city, then you will be healed. If you would have done that, you might have, if he would have said that, maybe you would have done that. Or if he said, go find this great treasure hidden in the mountains, maybe you would have gone and done that. If you would have done a difficult thing, but he didn't ask you to do a simple thing. Verse 13, but his servant approached him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you wash and be 
clean. Naaman listens to the logic of his servant. He ends up going to the Jordan. He ends up washing in the Jordan and doing what Elisha told him. I I, I picture this scene too. Sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I I picture it kind of like a movie, like I said, and this is a great story for that. But Naaman, bathing in this muddy river, dips down. One, nope, still there. Two, nope, still there. Three, four, five, six. He comes to the sixth one. He's like, I think this thing should probably be going away by now, but it hasn't gone away. It's still here. And he thinks to himself, is it going to happen? And he goes down that seventh time, and he comes up, and something has changed. Let's read it. Verse 14. He dipped in the Jordan seven times according to the command of God. Not the command of Elisha. Elisha was just the messenger who brought the command of God to him. According to the command of God, the man of God. And then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy and he was clean. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this in church. Don't tell Pastor Clay, he's not here. But his skin became as smooth as a baby's butt. Think of it that way in our terms. He came up and maybe this, this sun-dried general comes up and he's like, man, my skin looks great and I am healed. It worked. I can't believe it. And it changes everything about his life. Because what we find out is it wasn't just the healing that happened on his body, but the healing that happened in his heart. And when the God, uh, the one true God encountered his life and he met a real God, not a fake God, but a God who could change him on the outside and also change him on the inside, it rocked his world. And he comes back to Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, Elisha, not Elijah. He comes back to Elisha, the prophet, and he tries to give him everything he has. Man, here's my gold. Man, here's my silver. Have all that I've been given by the king. Have it all. And Elisha could have taken it, but he refuses. No, I'm not going to have it. Because one, Elisha knows that, it, knows that he was the man of God who gave the word. He was not the God of the word. He was the messenger boy. It was God who had done the healing. And two, he didn't do it for earthly gain. He didn't do it to get rich. Because look at the, this dude did miracles after miracle after miracle. He was a miracle machine. He could have been a very rich man. But he wasn't. He refuses it. And Naaman asks this request. Okay, fine. But can I take back with me, can I take back with me some loads of dirt from your land, as much as my donkeys will carry? And we listen to that and we go, that's really weird. Why would you want dirt from the land of Israel? And I'll tell you why. Because the land of Israel was God's land. And he wanted to worship the one true God in his land of Syria and bring God's dirt in his mind, God's dirt up to Syria so that he could worship the one true God on an altar made out of that dirt because he wanted to make sure and he wanted to be able to tell people that he was worshiping on God's dirt. And that God was different from the God that was in Samaria. I mean, Syria, excuse me. This was the true God that heals. And he gets in. Then he asks for a request to not be punished because the king that he serves still worships the false god and he's going to be with him when he goes to worship this false god. And he asks, please, it, just let the Lord know. Let the Lord know that I'm not worshiping this false god. And Elisha looks at him and he says the perfect words. He says, go in and the peace that he had received in the river was the peace that he would bring back 
to Syria. Wonderful story and a happy ending. I think we could take like, I don't know, another hour, two hours, three hours to really get into all the details and the subplots of this story. And there's so many different things we could do, but I know you want to get out of here and eat lunch. Tyler has a Taco Bell appointment in a little while, so I want to get you out of here. We're going to look at just three things today that I believe kind of go into what I was talking about, uh, about our mission and your mission in life. First, God uses the simple obedience of the faithful. God uses the simple obedience of the faithful. We see a servant, really a slave girl, who just says a simple word, gives good news to her master, who can find healing in the land of Israel by the one true God. It's a simple word. It was nothing difficult. She didn't have to have uh, all the points memorized and all the verses there. She just gave him the hope he needed, and he took the journey. That we can realize that the simple obedience of the faithful can change lives in your life. It may be just talking to a coworker at lunch about what Christ is doing in your life. It may be just at school, uh, just living Christ out in front of your friends, and your friends go, man, you're kind of weird. And then you give an opportunity to say why you're weird and say that Christ has changed my life. It may be an opportunity to give out an iVite card, or it may be an opportunity to travel halfway across the world and be a, a missionary in Moscow, but to obey simply. And then we see a second example of simple obedience of the faithful. The second example comes from Naaman, who reluctantly obeys the prophet of God. And Naaman, this great man, goes and humbles himself in obedience to God, and God changes his life. But it wasn't, it was simple, but it wasn't easy, right? I don't want you to get confused that when I say simple obedience, that I'm meaning easy obedience. Because simple and easy aren't the same thing. If I was to go bungee jumping, it's kind of a simple process for me, at least. I, I know the guys around may have gone through all the safety checks, at least I hope. But a simple process, I tie something around my feet and I jump two steps and then I bounce, right? It's a simple process, but it's not easy. If I was to stand on the edge of some bridge 350 feet in the air and to jump off, I would be terrified. It wouldn't be an easy thing, but it would be a simple thing. And so I don't want you to get confused when I say simple obedience. I mean easy obedience because over and over again, we see in Scripture and we see throughout church history and we see in our world today that simple obedience to God can lead to very difficult places. It can lead to um, just so recently seeing your head chopped off for believing in Jesus Christ. Yes, they simply obeyed him in their belief, but it led to difficult circumstances. But obedience is one step in front of the other saying, yes, God, yes, God, where next, God? How do you want me to go next? Simple obedience of saying yes and watching where it leads. The next, God uses the gospel or used the gospel to cleanse our sins. Naaman, changed completely life rocked and when he comes out he has a reason to be obedient to god because god healed him god changed him and when that happens it's an amazing thing it reminds me of when i was a freshman in college i took college english and i got to the end and i wasn't a terrible writer well you can talk to my professor about that but uh it wasn't horrible but i was a horrendous speller like, I mean, the worst. Still am. And you got spell check on Microsoft Word, so it's all good. 
You know, just make sure red underlined words aren't read anymore. Hopefully you put the right synonym in there and all that. Okay, so, so the final exam for English was a written exam, which meant no spell check. And I go and I do this thing, and I'm trying to sound all smart. I don't even know what that, that thing looked like. I'm sure it was misspelled everywhere. It was crazy. You could have a maximum of five misspellings, and even like accidental errors were considered misspellings. And if you got more than five, you were done. You failed not just that exam, but you failed all of freshman English. I went in there, and I failed miserably. And my professor comes to me. He says, and I've been going to him all semester, just trying to get help, trying to do well. And he says, I don't ever do this, Ivy. I know that you failed, but I'm going to give you a second chance. And I'm going to allow you to come back and do that exam again. Hopefully you pass this time, because this is the only second chance you're getting. So I went in there, and I used really baby words. I was like, I am a boy. And I passed. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm here. I'm, you know, in seminary. Thank God. Got through freshman English. And I passed. And I, it was because of what he did. And I still, to this day, have great respect for that man. Because when you've been given something that you didn't deserve, when you've been given, in Naaman's case, healing that was not of your own doing, you come out and you have great respect and you are willing to serve the God who healed you. We see this in the New Testament with Jesus as the woman comes and washes his feet with her hair and her tears and the bottle of perfume around her neck and she washes his feet and the Pharisees look at him and go, what are you doing letting her do that? Don't you know who she is? She's just a prostitute. And Jesus says, because she has been forgiven much, she is thankful Let me actually read it. How about that? Let's actually read what Jesus says. He says, therefore, I tell you, many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And I will tell you this, that in my life, I've been forgiven much. And we have great reason for the sickness that's not just on our skin, but the sickness that was in our heart when Christ saved us and took that away and healed us. And we came up out of the waters of baptism for the first time. We have great reason to want to serve our Savior because of what he's done. Because of what he's done in our life. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time, that we should walk in them. God cleansed our souls. He changed us. And because of that great work, we simply obey. But finally, God's word must go. The last words in the story that we read today was Elisha saying, go in peace. Bring the peace back to Syria. And throughout the Bible, actually, we see this this idea of going. It's not just a New Testament concept to go ye therefore into all the earth. It's a concept that starts in the book of Genesis from when God says, spread my image all over creation. And then it moves to the Tower of Babel when the people said, no, we're not going to spread anywhere, God. We're going to stay right here and build this tower. God spreads them himself. And says, go out. And he spreads them across the earth. And then we see him tell Abraham. That you will be a blessing to many nations. Not just to Israel. But all the earth. And we even see the reluctant Jonah go to Nineveh. A city far outside of Israel. And give the gospel to Nineveh. And watch them repent. God has been a going God. All the way through the Old Testament. With the prophets giving prophecies to nations all around Israel. God has been a going God. But most of the time it came through reluctance. It came through a dispersion. It came through the the, uh, Jews being sent to Babylon. Or it came through a slave girl. 
being taken out of her home and brought to the household of Naaman who gives a word of hope that God's word cannot stop and will not be stopped. And where we go, we have the word of God living inside of us. God's word goes. And so we have to go. And that word goes to Naaman, and Naaman is changed by the word of God. And when he hears it, he brings it back to Syria and brings the hope back to his people. And when they see him worship on God's dirt to the one true God, they see that God in power. And when he lifts up his sleeve and he says, I'm healed, baby. They see the healing that God can do and the power of the word of God in our lives. God's word must go. It's a passage. We're going to look at Matthew real quick. It's a passage you've heard a million, bazillion times probably. Pastor Clay says it often at my school. They read it seven times a day. It's required. No, I'm just kidding. They don't. It's not really required, but they do read it a lot. It's on the back of my laptop, which I don't have up here. It is Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. And it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not only has God changed us in that mere fact that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should desire to go. But God has commanded it. As Elisha told Naaman to go in peace, Christ has told us to go in peace. Today, we bring that to the world. Going in peace doesn't mean always going around the world. doesn't mean going to New England. It doesn't just mean going to uh, your neighbor, but it means all those things at the same time. That maybe going for you is staying in your neighborhood and being a witness to those around you. Maybe going for you means talking to that employee or that employer or that fellow. Maybe going for you means ministering to your family. It's simple obedience because of what God has done for us and realizing it's a yes God and a yes God move we live our lives in that way. So many things you can do. As I bring it back around and we finish out, we go on this journey and it has been a journey of many steps. It, we didn't just jump to Boston, but we're going to need your help. In Scripture, we see that churches start churches. Organizations don't start churches. Churches start churches and birth churches. So today I come to an expression of God's church and ask this. We're looking for, for our church, we're looking for 100 plus prayer partners that will pray passionately for us every day and get on their knees and intercede for my family and those of the people that will go to the church that we will start hopefully in 2017 will be the actual date that we start. Some prep time in there. Um, and we'll get on your knees and pray. I'd love a million people to do it, but we're asking for a hundred. So maybe that can be where you are. But there's also another step, and this is a big step. And this is not just a cross-culture church. I don't say this to say, I need five families to come with me to Boston. Because I'm, I'm giving this out to other churches. I'm talking to other churches who are going to support us in that kind of thing. And families hopefully will come from all over. And families will even come from Boston as we move up there and get to know people. We have families work in the church. But maybe, maybe... There is a family here who is to come with us. I don't know. It's not for me to decide. It's for God to talk to you and you to take one step at a time. And, and finally, we're looking for partners in finances. I wish that starting a church was free. I wish that 
It just didn't cost anything. Everybody opened the doors. It didn't cost anything to rent schools or to, or to keep the lights on or to pay staff or anything like that. But we don't live in a world like that. And there's going to be opportunities for you and many other churches to, um, to give to God's work. And I ask you that if God speaks to you in that way, say yes. Say yes. But this is not the only way to serve God. You can serve God right here and now and say yes to him right now in all kinds of ways all over this church. From our student ministry, which we need volunteers in, by the way. Bad. Plug. I'm the student pastor, by the way, if you didn't know that. All right. To our greeter ministry, to our worship band, to all the setup team. You can say yes to God today. Will you do it? Will you go where he tells you to go? Will you live how he tells you to live? Because of the change that's happened in your heart, it compels you to simply obey him. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather every week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere and celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. A community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person. Real people who truly care. Solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens. And the most energetic, safe, and fun kids program around. Find out more at crossculturelife.org. I want you to the cross. I want you Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.